Hello everyone, Future Dave here. Just to let you know, you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash emnetwork. We really appreciate all your support, and we hope to see you in more episodes in the future. Now on with the show. To now you're listening to Exo Friends on the Elder Millennial Network, a, a Exo Squad Club podcast where we want to talk about this old cartoon called Exo Squad from the early '90s that I loved as a kid, at least Kayvon loved as a kid, and Lex is seeing for the first time. First, let me ask Lex: Do you prefer Lex or Lexi? Or uh, Lexi? Lexi? Okay. Great. I will prefer to you for that from now on. Myself, I'm David Hoyt. I am your standard uh, IT working neckbeard. I just really <laughs> loved this cartoon uh, from back when I was a kid, and I thought it would be fun to record some thoughts about it with people I know and love and consider to be really smart. So uh, why don't, uh, Kayvon, why don't you tell us who you are at this point? Uh, well, I also am a neckbeard, although I don't work in IT, and I've never really, like, um, you know, been able to make a bunch of heads or tails of computers in that sense. But uh, I, um, I just finished my PhD at a uh, Research One University, who I'm not going to bother naming because it's a trash institution that I'm not exactly super happy with. They've really botched the uh, kind of COVID situation and things. But nevertheless, I just finished my PhD there. I graduated in May um, and I'm just kind of working in the workaday world. I've left academia behind uh, to have more time in my life to do things like this. And uh, yeah, I'm just here to talk about a show that I absolutely adore with a friend of mine who I have known for a very long time. Actually, probably one of my oldest friends, Dave. Uh, yeah, eighth grade? Uh, ninth, I think, Mr. Hersky's ninth. geology class. Ninth right? grade, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which would have been um, something like uh, 23 years ago. Oh, we're old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a long time, man. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you're the only other person I know that's actually ever seen Exo Squad. I like bring it up a lot because this is like one of my favorite cartoons as a kid. I can probably count on one hand the number of people I've known who also watched Exo Squad as a kid. And it, that to me, that's absurd with how good this cartoon was. I understand right. why, why that happened, but let's go. Let's go on to uh, Lexi. Uh, you want to just give us a quick synopsis of who you are and why you're here, and maybe a little bit of your. Uh, experience with ExoSquad? So I, I kind of quote some of Kayvon's introduction. Um, I think you were saying you've been talking to me about this forever, right? Uh, no, I just talked to, you know, like I talked to other people that I've met over the years and like asked them like if they've seen the show and like no one has other than Dave. Yeah, I mean, because you're literally the only person I know that's ever spoken to me about it. Um, and I thought that was just because it was like coming from South Africa, we didn't get ExoSquad. Um, but I guess this is like not something that's that common in the U.S. either. Yeah, uh, it, it got it got buried under a deluge of early '90s cartoons that were toys toy commercials, but they were actually good cartoons. Like, <laughs> is there anything else you want to tell us about yourself, Lexi? For like, um, well, what what gives you your point of view? <laughs> 
So I suppose I, uh, I'm a South African, if I've already just made that obvious. Uh, so I grew up with a lot of the same television, but also a lot of very different televisions. So I had never heard of Exo Squad, and this was my experience, like my first time watching it. So I guess coming to it as an adult, I don't have the same kind of like nostalgia goggles. Um, but it's been really fun, right? Like it's a really fun show and there's a lot of, uh, how do I say it? Like adult themes that are <laughs> woven into the story. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. I hope I can just be like the technically inept uh, foreigner voice in this podcast. Well, I expect far more than that from you, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, there is there is like you said there are like all these adult themes woven into this show and like the thing I always come back to is that this is the first time that I remember on a cartoon that was being broadcast on television for syndication seeing people die on screen constantly. Yeah, and not just like once in a while right and not just either like oh it's like oh somebody died who it's like brutal deaths pretty regularly <laughs> yeah i think i think when we were first talking about this cave on like the only reason i could come up with why the space in the solar system that this takes place in is not just littered with gore and body parts is i have to imagine that whenever these suits in spaceships explode it just completely vaporizes whatever's inside them and otherwise people would need like windshield washers to get <laughs> this shit off their like their uh their viewfinders and everything <laughs> right right it, i mean it's, it's astounding like and it's like one of those shows where like because you know people die and i don't want to give too much away but like main characters too because you know it's possible for main characters to die you're like actually like invested in the action sequences it's like oh shit someone might actually get killed here yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, we've already started talking about the show, but you know, just to tell everyone who may not know what this show is, and we're going to give away a little bit of it, but nothing that isn't given away in the very first episode's intro sequence. Thanks, right. guys. Yeah. Uh, so this this cartoon is called Exo Squad. It ran from 1992 to 1993 for about 52 episodes and two quote unquote seasons. Uh, the main the main storyline follows a squad of uh, a military unit called Abo Squad who go through this terrible nightmarish war against a race of artificially created human beings called Neo Sapiens. Uh, it follows them from the beginning of that war to the end of that, and the the show goes into the history of why this war started, what like things came out of the recent history like from when the neo sapiens were created up until the point where this war starts and you really start to get like a almost sympathetic point of view for anyone who could consider, be considered the villain in this show right. even though even though the main villain the, this character named phaeton is obviously like this hitler metaphor for being this charismatic leader who just is kind of insane by the end of the show yeah. yeah, and they're like, I mean, they perpetrate all kinds of very obviously Nazi-esque crimes. I think there's an episode where they even say something like, we'll find the final answer to the human problem. Yeah. Awful, like the final solution. Uh, but that's like, I think also one of the things that stuck with me over the years, because it's probably been, I don't know, it's been over 25 years since I first saw the show. Because one of the things that stuck with me is like, it doesn't have clear-cut bad guys. Like, yeah, the Neo-Sapiens are doing terrible things, and like, Phaeton is like, 
like this almost caricature Hitler figure. But the Neo-Sapiens themselves are a lot more complicated and their motivations and reasons for why they're fighting this war and attacking humans and stuff like are really complex. And it's not like a G.I. Joe where it's like Cobra's like definitely the bad guy and Cobra Commander's just evil because he's evil. It's really like it has a lot of nuance in a way that like it was difficult to wrap my head around when I was like, I think probably about 10 when I first saw this first the first the show for the first time. Yeah, if you watched it when it first came out, you probably would have been about 10 years old. Yeah. But of course, this is all on the backdrop of being a toy commercial, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, so I want to ask though, if this wasn't that popular, like if you're the only two people who <laughs> seem to have watched this show in the United States, uh, like, did you, I don't know, Dave, did you find out anything about the toy sales or like merchandising? Like, how successful was this in terms of selling stuff? So, I, I didn't, I didn't necessarily find out anything like numbers that would have kept the show going but i have to assume they weren't terribly good because you've got shows like you know teenage mutant ninja turtles and transformers that went on way longer and probably sold way more toys than this did but you know going going to the toys though like i i don't know if either of you looked at some of those toys or cave on if you ever had them my parents were they they bought me these toys all a lot of these exosquad toys because i really loved the show as a kid and they were, for the time, incredible action figures. Yeah, like they had they had so many points of articulation. They came with a tiny figure for the person flying the the like mecha suit, then the mecha suit itself, and stickers for like battle damage and shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. which, which you have to know, I put everywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they like. They had so many, like, they would shoot so many different little missiles and things, like, so many spring-loaded little, like, missiles. And, and not just missiles, like, pointy plastic objects. <laughs> like, yeah. if you had a pet or you shot one of those things into your eye, you're definitely hurting someone. Yeah. <laughs> because they didn't shoot really slow, either. They shot, like, I could probably shoot one a good 10 or 20 feet. Yeah, and, like, leave <laughs> a mark within five feet easily. <laughs> like, some of those really hurt. I had, um, I had one of the jump troops and he had like a, with that like disc launcher in his boot that would shoot those little plastic discs. Yeah. And that thing like clear across my room and out the door into the hallway. Yeah. Um, so just like listening to you guys talk about these toys and then looking at some of the images on Google and I'm imagining like exo squad choking hazard. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Just- yeah. Dozens of children are dead because of these toys. That <laughs> might be something worth looking into. Are there like any high profile incidents of like children being maimed by like Marsala's E-frame? Well, and some of the toys were huge too. Like yeah. you think you think about some of the bigger, maybe Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys, like the Technodrome or their base or something like that. One of these mech suits, especially the ones that had more than one pilot, were yeah. almost the size of those things. Yeah, yeah, like the big green one. Um, if you ever Google uh, like a picture, or if you're familiar with the series, the giant green one that Marsala and um, Nara Burns pilot is massive. I remember them being. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call like absurdly expensive too. They, I think the like the single person ones cost anywhere between ten to twenty dollars in early '90s money, which is what maybe. I guess that is pretty expensive. Like that's probably what. 40 to 60 dollars now right 
I don't, I don't know, but either way, I mean, like back then, back then, money that's like the cost of a fairly small sized Lego kit. Like you know, the super small ones, and those are like maybe five to six bucks. But that's like the next tier up. So it's really like compared to other like more like well known toys like Legos or even some of the big GI Joe ships, Starcom stuff. Like that's pretty affordable. Oh man, I didn't think Starcom. I forgot about those toys. I know. Well, once we get through Exo Squad, we might be able to pivot back to talk about <laughs> yes. Starcom. We'll so. just go through. We'll just go through the entire array of cartoon toy commercials that are worth talking about, right? Yep. Uh, well, so you know, just talking about those toys and such. It's like you know, you think again, just thinking about other toys that you had back then. They were just really what i consider to be top notch and like i'm not really like a toy aficionado or anything i just remember them very fondly which is probably going to get old for the audience at some point because i'm just going to gush about all this stuff because (laughs) it has nostalgia (laughs) coming out the ass for me and it's just like man if if thinking about like if this came out today what kind of a hit it would be because of how easy it is to watch whatever you want Maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't be. Maybe, maybe you know, people would watch this and be like, "This is garbage." But I have to imagine that if it didn't get the treatment that it did back then, where they put it at like a four a.m. on weekday time slot, right? For like, you know, I got up pretty early to go to school, probably around six a.m. every day. There's no way I would ever catch that. No. <laughs> no. What time? What time slot did you encounter it in? I. Re- seem to remember it being on uh usa's like uh what what did they call it their cartoon express on saturday mornings oh yeah that's when i remember seeing it like right alongside the good sonic the hedgehog cartoon back then (laughs) (laughs) i know the one you're talking about yeah i uh, for me it was it was in syndication on one of the local networks it might have been upn or i can't remember but um it was in syndication after school it was like 3 4 o'clock in the afternoon or something like that and i get home from school just in time to catch it and i think by that point it was already it might have already even been canceled by that point lexi so you grew up in south africa right yeah so i am like i'll i'm not ashamed to admit my age i'm 35 and i spent the <sighs> 30 years of my life in south africa so i've already been in the u.s for about five years now okay did, did they was there like the the I don't say the concept of Saturday morning cartoons. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there was like the <laughs> there was definitely like first thing in the morning on Saturday was like the little kids stuff, and then from about like I don't know, like nine to twelve would be the older kids stuff. Uh, and I remember like the Batman animated series, for example, was like the big one that I would always catch. So like Saturday morning, and then Sunday mornings would also have some cartoon stuff. So we had really similar programming blocks. I just don't remember this specific show in South Africa. I doubt it even made it over. It probably never had distribution there. Yeah, I, I, it really. I think once it got into like its quote unquote second season, that was when they started to move it away from the actual good time slots and put it in these, you know, put it in the area where oh wow, we act, we made way too many episodes, so we should just put them on TV anyways. Even though no one's going to watch it at this time, so we can sell commercials for you know sham wows and shit or whatever, <laughs> if whatever infomercials. Like old kids. Wow. <laughs> whatever whatever infomercials they had in the nineties, like right. Well, and it's like you got to wonder why. So you know the first se- the first season is what thirteen episodes, fourteen yeah. something like that, 
And then they triple the size of the second season. It's 39 episodes. And they, why would you triple the size of it, order three times as many episodes, and then condemn it to this just like death knell time slot? It doesn't make any sense. I have to, I have to admit it because the, the end of the first season is this really fantastic ending episode for a story yeah. arc right right and, like i have to imagine that was somewhat the writer's decision but it does seem strange like you said it's like okay why is this next season third what 33 episodes nine yeah. i think it's because you know, 39 yeah total, yeah yeah 39 episodes and it, it as with most things tv related and scheduling related like you know you, you look at it and you're like why which is baffling. Like, why would you? Why would you do this? Did you just have other cartoons you wanted to show besides this, <laughs> or that you thought would yeah. be better? Because let's talk about like this. The show was made by Universal Cartoons, which by far and away this is the best cartoon of the ones <laughs> I've seen listed that they ever made. Like the rest of them are all just garbage tier. If from from things that I used to watch, like I would remember, say like some of these cartoons like earthworm Jim or something coming on and i might watch earthworm Jim, but then like beethoven based off of that dog <laughs> movie and like if that comes on my tv as a little kid i'm changing the channel to one of the other saturday morning cartoon sets to try to find something better yeah or like just screw it i'll go outside if there's nothing else on because i am absolutely not watching <laughs> beethoven yeah. or fivel's american tales or you know like. <laughs> or, or like the the two the two ones that stuck out to me were the were something I'd never heard of called Monster Force, and let me let me quick bring up the uh, the description for the first episode of Monster Force to to show you <laughs> what we're what we're contending with here. Dracula and Renfield abduct Luke and try to destroy his humanity and make him embrace a monster by forcing him to kill the rest of the monster force. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> I've what? never heard of this cartoon before, and I'm going to find it and watch it. Yeah. Because oh, wow. this sounds amazingly bad, but in the best way. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this should be our season two for sure. <laughs> this looks awful. So I see you have this list here and like, I don't remember any of these. I, I know the universal films like land before time was huge in South Africa. Um, like five all goes West. And what was this, the follow-up like American tale, even Bolter had some popularity or like some distribution in South Africa that I remember, but like none of these TV shows, what is the mummy animated series though? So do you remember, um, the Brendan Fraser movie, The oh, Mummy. God. Yes, it's it's a cartoon based off of that, very loosely. That's weird. I mean, also another film starring a South African actually played the Mummy, but that's oh. a very strange animated series. Uh, I've never heard of that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so so all those movies you just listed. The the bad thing about like this this cartoon studio and what I have on the in the general notes is that those aren't even the original ones of those movies every one of those like they only made the straight to video land before time like three through 13 oh, no. and like the the straight to video of five cartoons balto cartoons and 
I don't know why this one stuck out to me, but it sounded like the worst thing ever. <laughs> Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Does That's, everyone uh, does everyone remember classic. watching that movie? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, yeah I, I vaguely remember it existing. I definitely did not. I've never seen it. And then my, my absolute favorite thing from their list of productions are the cut scenes from the original Crash Bandicoot games. <laughs> just like so what a bizarre like credit to have the, the, apparently sony studios didn't have um the 3d animation chops to do it themselves so they had to find someone who did and universal cartoons was like uh i think we could do that i don't know and i guess they did an okay job because crash bandicoot's pretty good but this does read like my undergraduate resume like hey i i did something like i i've done this thing that was uh vaguely important or like vaguely interesting so like, someone's seen it somewhere once or twice right <laughs> well, it, it, and i i feel bad too right because like obviously i'm not an animator i've never worked on animating a show i'm sure that's hard as fuck to do and like i feel like i'm shitting on all these people's work but just like from from a point of view of would I ever actually buy this and watch this? No, no. none of these. Zero, <laughs> zero chance I would ever do that. Especially like the six Woody Woodpecker reboot series they did. <laughs> Why is there a demand for Woody Woodpecker reboots? Oh man, it's just sometimes you know you need content. And you just got to shovel something out there. Yeah, you know, I'd be I'd be curious too how many of these animators would be like, oh, I just needed to pay the bills, so you get a Beethoven. Yeah, it, I mean, you know, you, you do what you do to make the money you can, right? And, like, some some of the creative forces behind it, like, you know, the people who are credited with, you know, being the art director and the creator and everything, they're, they've done some things I've heard of, uh, but, like, except for, the, except for the art director, the other people behind it, like, the voice actors, you've probably never heard of or would recognize them for their line of work most so a lot of them are dead now from old age the uh the 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 guy who's credited with creating it just a bunch of again just more cartoons that you would turn off as a little kid you're like ah, i don't see this except for one that i love to bring up called sky commanders and the only reason i don't think i ever watched it uh, ever watched the cartoon but I owned a bunch of toys because they were like the only toys my parents could buy me when we lived in Sicily. And <laughs> they they were these little action figures with like jetpack things, but they had like a little groove that you could run along a string. So my bedroom as a little kid was just filled with all of these like string traps <laughs> that my that my dad absolutely hated because he couldn't walk into my room, but I wanted to set them up to play with my Sky Commanders. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, and like I've got a whole bunch of other stuff here written down for stuff they've done, but it almost like except for the funny point of Pride of the X Men, which I don't know if you, you did. You guys ever watch the old X Men cartoon? Yes. Uh, the old one, but not Point of Pride. The Pride of the X Men, no. Right. Well, so the Pride of the X Men was the pilot for that cartoon. And the noble things about it. Wolverine was Australian for some reason. Like, wait, what? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) not 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 just Australian. They they hired. It seems like they hired the worst voice act, American voice actor ever, to play an Australian accent, and he just sounds awful. And he's a jerk in the whole cartoon. And then, of course, like the intro song, everyone knows the X Men intro song, and all that. Yeah, it's your heart pounding, right? It's so exciting. Well, the the 
theme song for this is just like seven dudes yelling, X-Men, X-Men, save the day. <laughs> we, I definitely we need to listen to that at some point here. That's beautiful. Turn your, turn your volume down because it's like equalized really poorly and it's just screaming it. It's terrible. Yeah. I'm looking at the voice of Marsala, a guy named Gary Chalk. Who actually is English? Because um, Marsala is well, who we'll get into, I'm sure, in a little bit. Uh, is an English actor or has an English accent, uh, which is funny for a Neo Sapien. It's like, oh, he's just got—he's like the only Neo Sapien that seriously has a British accent. But okay, whatever. Um, uh, but apparently, he played Sheriff Williams in Freddy vs. Jason, which now I do want to go back and rewatch to see like Marsala in a movie, let alone Freddy vs. Jason at that. What if he came out and like actually was Marsala? Marcella, Marcella versus Jason. That I would actually like. I mean, that would be a fantastic like Jason X two, like Jason X squared, but he has to fight like Marsala and the Neo Sapiens. I would go to the cinema during Corona times to watch that. Absolutely, <laughs> I would seriously risk Corona for that movie. That, I, mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't blame you. I wouldn't blame you. And I was trying to look up to see if this did go to South Africa. I'm just kind of like looking through the Wikipedia page right now, but I can't find. It did. It did at least make its way to Brazil because I saw like an official title card for it in Brazil, but obviously different continents. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we also we got stuff sometimes, but it was like under a different name. But I do not remember this at all. And I know we got a lot of like weird European syndicated stuff um, <laughs> that would then be dubbed into English. So like we got uh like Heidi the animated series. Oh yeah, I remember I remember that being um on the on the base TV channel when I lived in Sicily. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I also for, I forgot that you also like grew up, you know, outside the states for part of your life, so Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, but not just just that one stint in Sicily really, but you know, you you got whatever the base paid to put on their one TV channel. I I would actually I would actually love to sit down and hear uh like cartoons that you you may have got as a kid that we didn't get and i'm sure there's some wild stuff in there i mean so yeah like i mean because i was born in 1985 and i was actually thinking like when this show was running we were going through our transition period in south africa so the transition from apartheid to democracy um, i was gonna i was gonna ask you to 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 say that because i'm sure there are people listening to this who are like what transition did south africa go through yeah. <laughs> What, what are you talking about? What? Um, so, I mean, that might have also played a role. And, like, thinking about the themes of this show, I don't know. I was like, oh, wow, like, <laughs> interesting, interesting politics here. Um, like, earlier when you were saying, oh, like, what would a show, how would this be received now? I think in some ways it might be received really well. But in other ways, I think, like, you would have weird QAnon conspiracies about how this is, like, you know, anti-military or, like, <laughs> I was just thinking about that. Like this show, this show would become like the ire of alt-right message boards and things like that. Be like, they may be blue, but the message is clear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And sometimes I've been, I wonder, I've like wondered this for a long time, if that's not part of the reason the show didn't survive. And like, it was just relegated to these time slots where it was left to die is because like, it has this strong anti-war message. It's anti-militarist. Um, you know, kind of portrays being like caught up in militarism is like as fascism, right? Like, and on, on both sides of the aisle, too. So it's not just it's not just the Neo Sapiens, right? Some of the earliest scenes that you see of the of the humans, Terrans rather, 
uh, it's like they're very kind of militaristic, fascistic. They have that side cut. Like everybody's got a side cut, it seems like, and looks really kind of fashy. Yeah. I, I didn't know whether to attribute that just to like 90s or if there was something else going on there. Like, I, I don't think that a lot of times when people were writing these cartoons, like they really had these messages in mind, but they certainly come through that way with, when you look at them through today's lens, right? Right, right. Well, and that first, so, you know, I was kind of getting into the first episode a little bit, but the the scene where uh, we see the, um, the the kind of council of like homeworlds people, I can't remember exactly what the name of the organization is, but there there's that woman who has that like very kind of Hitlerian sort of haircut, like carrying on about how like we have to get vengeance and we have to go out and crush them and all this sort of stuff. And it looks very like, it just feels very fascist and like kind of had t- echoes of, um, of Starship Troopers too for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I could I could definitely see some like teenagers walking down the street in this future and like walking by like a view screen or something like that and it says join Exo Squad. Would you like to learn more? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because up until up until the real conflict starts, Exo Squad seems like a cushy job. <laughs> but we'll get into that when we start talking about the first episode. Uh, although now having said that, like is there anything else you guys want to talk about in the generalities about the series itself? I think I did a I did a plot summary and uh, we kind of went over like its place in cartoon pantheon history. It might be interesting, I think, to talk a little bit about Will Munio. Looking at your, I don't know how to pronounce that name, but like looking at his name or his list of um, credits is Im- very impressive. Yeah, did I? Br- oh, yeah, no, he is the he is the shining beacon in all of these guys who worked on uh, a lot of shows that I consider to be very good right right like some some of them i just put on there for hilarity like that old cops show that had nothing had nothing (laughs) to do with the cops tv show like the the reality show it was just (laughs) it's a cartoon with c-o-p-s and i can't remember what that stands for but it, it was something absurd and like defenders of the earth that's a pretty that's a kind of obscure one that i thought was really good but just you know batman bucky o'hare captain planet etc etc like Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Captain Planet's the reason I still call him Meta. <laughs> like, especially because we have the Don Cheadle Captain Planet now, who will turn you into a fucking tree. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, seriously. Like, like, I think Captain Planet really. Because remember, I remember being a kid and littering being so much more of a problem in the eighties, and then I feel like our generation was so indoctrinated for the better by Captain Planet to just not litter. That like you know our highways are a lot cleaner, and then when I when I, I lived in England for a little while, when I moved over there, it's like there's litter everywhere, and everyone just like casually litters, like it's no big deal. It's like oh, you people did, obviously didn't have Captain Planet. <laughs> so like I I only want to mention one more, just so anyone who ever watched the show will have the theme song stuck in their head the whole next week. Denver, the last dinosaur. He's your friend, and a oh, whole yeah. lot more. Oh man, <laughs> which is not a which is not a tagline slash like uh, song lyrics that is oh, aged no. really oh, well. No. <laughs> uh, like, what is this we're doing with the children? Oh man, I had some I had something else really good to say about uh, about some of these cartoons, but now it just it flew out of my head with that because now that theme song stuck in my head, and I have to. We can't do the show anymore. I have to get it out with a drill. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he he's he's really the shining beacon of you know what anyone who was involved in the show moved on to do, or anyone who was known for being involved in the show moved on to do. Right. 
Except for, of course, Gary Chalk's uh, stunning performance of Jack yes, Williams. Yes. How could we ever forget that that turnaround performance? <laughs> really made the movie. Uh, so, oh, I know what I was going to say. Like, I may have touched on it before. One of one of the reasons I think this really kind of failed is because, again, in the early '90s, there was a glut of good cartoons coming out. Yeah, and this came out later than some of them, which I found surprising. Uh, like Batman, X Men, Spider Man, and a few others. Like, how can you compete with those? It, it's it's really hard. Yeah. So that was a crowded field back then of good, good children. Yeah. And even in like some of the far flung time slots, there was a lot of good stuff. Remember that Phantom cartoon on like Sunday mornings Phantom or something like that? Remember that? Being oh, really you mean cool? it was an old Phantom show? But it was yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, there was so much. I mean, there was so much that even like the off time slots had like a lot of really good stuff. And that was the age of like Animaniacs too, and like so much stuff. Did I think Disney was just at that time starting some of their daily cartoon offerings too, like mm. Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers and all that. What mm -hmm. a time to be a kid, right? Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I mean, we're spoiled because you had so many like really, and I'm sure like I don't. I mean, I don't watch contemporary kids cartoons, and I'm sure they're fantastic. But like, we just had so many. X-Men alone was like a kind of foundational cornerstone show for like, not just mine, but like a, a lot of people. I personally think a lot of like most, hmm, how can I say this without sounding like a complete douchebag? Uh, I, I think that a lot of people our age have progressive values or, you know, something approaching progressive mm. values because specifically of the X-Men, that, car yeah. that cartoon's yeah. anti-bigotry anti message was so strong. And so good. I mean, right. even though they kind of glossed over like actual racism, except for like I know there was a time travel episode where Storm and Wolverine get sent back to the seventies or the sixties, and like they try to kick them out of a bar because Storm's black, and she's just like racism based on the color of your skin. How quaint, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, because like the 90s is that sort of like triumphal moment where you kind of think like maybe we've triumphed to some degree. I mean, of course, you have like Rodney King to sort of start off the decade. But like it is this kind of like triumphal moment where it's like, OK, well, like maybe like American society, like we've gotten past all this stuff. There's women in the workforce now by George. And like, you know, I think you can kind of like it's and on one end of it, sort of pretend like maybe we've moved past those things. But there are still like kind of like issues of bigotry, especially, you know, directed at LGBTQ people and the like. And I think like that's something that like X-Men did really well in a way that I imagine if like you had X-Men today, it like if that show existed now and was running now, I think you would get a lot of it, it would be controversial. Right. There would be people praising it for its sort of anti-bigotry efforts. Other people saying it doesn't go far enough and criticizing for, you know, not dealing with things like, you know, actual racism um, directed to people of color. But then you'd also have people saying, like, I don't want no politics in my goddamn cartoons. Like, guys, art and media is political. <laughs> the end. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Always been. Uh, yeah. Well, let's 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 uh, like again. Unless you guys have anything else to say on the generalities, let's hop into that first episode. And before yeah, before totally. we begin, I did find out through doing the re the generality research that the entire series is available for free on NBC streaming service called Peacock. I didn't I didn't know that. That's a very recent thing, as far as I know. And I hope it stays up there a long time because this I personally believe this cartoon believes deserves to be seen by a lot of people uh yeah yeah so the first episode pirate scourge fall of the human empire i found out that 
the the DVD version of it that you can get on Amazon, the opening that you see in 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 that set is not the original first season opening. They don't show it on that DVD. So interesting. And because of that, if you watch this DVD, the the plot of the main show isn't really spoiled for you because the main events don't kick off until about the third episode. Right. Which is interesting because like the version that we've watched um, starts with that opening and it's like, Oh, Hey, guess what? This is going to happen in a few yeah, episodes. Time. Yeah. It also gives you like background though. So how do you like the whole, whatever that first like little two minute opening is literally just explaining <laughs> that humans created like a race of slaves. Right. It's, it's, it's J it's JT Marsh's version of, uh, of the history of the winners. Right. <laughs> He's like, yeah, uh, there, there was a, there was a war, and um, uh, we might have created a race of slave people, and they got angry and had an uprising. But well, so there's two, there's two different like kind of intros because there's like JT Marsh's one, which is the sort of standard one that runs before every episode, um, and on the old show. But there's also then McKenna's the the, the news guy. That's he. He's the one that goes back and talks about the Neo Sapien Rebellion. But the, the JT Marsh one doesn't actually mention that. It's just like this is a golden age for mankind. We're we're totally doing a, a great job, like running around the galaxy, like or running around the solar system. And soon we're going to head off to the stars. But then we were betrayed by our uh, creations that I've neglected to mention till now have really been instrumental. Listen, in our I don't know age. why they got upset and had this second war, but it was really a dick move. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> It's a bit of a Dr. Frankenstein scenario. Like, why? Why is this thing so angry at me? I don't understand. Why would you kill my fiance? I only gave ah. you sentience and the ability to suffer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like attacked by our own creations. And like Mars doesn't even reference the first like the first rebellion at all. It's just like all of a sudden like, oh, yeah, our creations. I've neglected to mention them till now. They attacked us. And uh, yeah, betrayed us, and so now we have to get them and crush them. He really goes over. He really glosses over a lot of important points as to how we got to where we are today. And but it, it is a shame. I do think it really is a big shame that if you watch, if you watch it on Peacock, you do see the original opening, and it does really like because I don't know if as a kid and maybe even as an as like a young adult, I would have been able to guess where this was going. Like obviously, is like in the second episode, you see you, you see Phaeton just like talking. Like he's he's scheming something, so you know something's up. But I didn't. I don't know if I would have necessarily recognized. Oh shit! Like Universe War Two is about to happen. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's subtle enough that you know um, the events that we'll talk about over the course of this episode are enough of a red herring. I think that you're like, oh, this is going to be a show about like fighting Yarr. space pirates, not this <laughs> much more yeah. complex much more difficult and sticky conflict. And we, we were talking about it before the show started, like the, the opening theme for this is really good. Like easily really top good. five, like really the only thing, like the only music set that I can think of or music creator that I can think of for opening Western cartoons that always beats, it would be Danny Elfman with Batman and, and like the Simpsons and a few other things that he did back then. But other than that, like maybe X Men top five, like you said, Kayvon, easily the the whole way. Easily, yeah, it's it's really rousing, it's stirring, like and with the uh, the like, it's worth even if you listen to this, just like pausing and like 
looking up the intro on YouTube because it's just like with the imagery too and the sounds of explosions and the space battles and everything. It's really, it was just like rousing. It was the golden age for all mankind. I'm telling you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so the episode kicks off and uh, do you guys want me to go over the scenes or we'll we just start off? Oh uh, yeah. Let's, we can kind of walk through them. I think like collectively okay. and talk about it. So yeah. the, 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 the show opens up with Charles McKenna, uh, a new, a newscaster for an, Un, well, may, maybe they did name it, but I don't. Re, I don't remember them having it in there for HBC. HBC I think we got to look. We got to look HBC. up what that stands for at some point. Um, you know, it, it kind of your standard, you know, cartoon kid cartoon narration exposition, but not in a terrible way. At least it's not just absolute like some voiceless or some nameless, faceless entity is talking to you. You actually have this person who obviously no one likes <laughs> nobody nobody <laughs> likes charles mckenna i like he, probably his mom doesn't even like him <laughs> right he's your like classic yeah. right like he's just awful like you know and it's that sort of you think about the reporter in like die hard he's oh that yeah guy i didn't even think about that <laughs> he even has like similar hair to that guy and he has that he has a little floating camera i love that thing how many how many like sympathetic portrayals of journalists were there in these kinds of cartoons? Like April O'Neil is the only one that comes to mind where you know she portrayed as like a halfway decent journalist. That's probably your best example, April O'Neil. Um, I think there was uh, I think there was some journalist in Batman the Animated Series who was at least depicted as competent. I don't remember their name. Maybe I'm thinking of the movie. I might be thinking of the movie. Yeah. But I think there's like a kind of hard turn against journalism in the 80s, like in the 80s and the Reagan era and stuff that like kind of picks up in the 90s too. And there's a sort of like, that's really when you see the decline and sort of like American trust in journalism as an institution also. And journalists started to like kind of occupy the same spaces, like maybe lawyers and stuff in the popular consciousness. And McKenna is just like, and that's, I mean, like, I think again, like you go back to Die Hard, which is what, like mid 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 80s sometime in there. And like, that's like a... Uh, you know, like that's I think a classic kind of portrayal of, of a journalist at the time, like someone who's just interested in breaking a blood and gut story, doesn't matter who gets hurt, that sort of stuff. And McKenna's very much the same way, he just wants to rile people up, create controversy, and get you, people you know, watching. He, um, would Spider Man count as a portrayal of like your brave journalist? Mm. Well, does he actually? He's a freelance that's photographer, true. right? Like he makes pictures, and then it's Jonah Jameson and his new staff. Um, you know, that are uh, that are putting the stories out. And the stories are always like, you know, he's very anti-Spider-Man. He's very, you know, like law and order against this, like sort of vigilante justice and all of that sort of stuff. Um, what's the Wait, Superman one? The, Doesn't, the, uh, yeah. Isn't Lois Lane's on it? She, yeah, she's a journalist, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. And Jimmy Olsen. I mean, whatever. it's a kid's show, but like, I don't remember their professions ever being like a, an the professions were more like a, a vehicle for stuff to happen than an actual thing they did. Like how much journalism really happens in any of those things, which makes sense because when you're a kid, you don't really... Yeah, that's true. Uh, unless the journalist is actually a superhero themselves or like had a superhero like in their pocket, like Lois Lane, it it never was like, wow, this journalist is a really cool character except for April O'Neil. It always just like... <laughs> there in the background or like writing for writing some story that seemed to be like a bad spin on the character on the main characters of the cartoon 
so I think I, I think you're right. Like there's there especially right. back then, I can't think of any example of a journalist character besides Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where the journalist was a good was a good slash main character. Huh. Yeah. And that yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't even think about that as we were as we're going up to this. But if if Charles McKenna existed today, which new which news organization would he work for? Fox, MSNBC, or CNN, mm. or The Blaze? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. that's a good question. Because, like, I mean, you could see him being a sort of apolitical, um, just you know, like trying to get the story, just like a, like a slime ball, like almost like a Drudge Report style kind of guy, but less pol- like apolitical, right? Because he doesn't seem like he's really interested. But we don't really ever get much in the sense of politics from the exo squad world anyway like of course there's like you know like political machinations between neosapiens and terrans but like the terrans don't seem to have a lot of political disagreement right so it's not like he's he's pretty apolitical but he's just like a kind of slime ball so almost like a drudge report sort of just trying to get like a sensational story out there without like it, it's like it, it's like because he's because he's on these he's in the space fleet right it's like if someone from the drudge report somehow managed to like stow away on an aircraft carrier and just showed up in like their mess hall and their command deck and people are like where the fuck does this guy keep coming from why haven't we shot him yet (laughs) (laughs) right like how does he actually get onto the bridge during the middle of a battle exactly (laughs) right and that's that's i think like one of the interesting things about that too is like i think he is kind of like the image of the journalist in vietnam who just kind of shows up and is there covering the combat and reporting on things that like people probably would you know like the generals and top brass probably wouldn't want people seeing and it's funny like watching this now in, after the in, the age of the iraq war where journalists were just kind of like absorbed into the military machine and sort of just became pr professionals for the military in the early especially in the early days of the iraq war you think of a What's his name from MSNBC, Brian, whatever his name is, like going into battle with the Marines and talking about how awesome and rad it is and stuff. And it's just like, this is not like if you if this show were made today, Charles McKenna would probably just be kind of like simp for the military. Just like, oh, JT Marsh, you're so awesome. Would you care to explain to us why you're so awesome? Yeah, no, I could see that. I could definitely see that. <laughs> so, well, but but the the reason why we're talking about Charles McKenna is because the whole first couple of minutes of this first episode is Charles McKenna narrating like some kind of documentary about the first Neo-Sapien war. And that's, this is probably what, this is one of the few instances where you get to hear about that war and like what it was, why it happened, or at least why Charles McKenna is saying it happened and you know, what it's, what it's repercussions were. And like I remember watching it, and just like just some of the imagery that go that's going on there, like it it see like it seems like he has taken the best and most violent footage that they ever caught. Which and by the way, how did they get this footage? Was there someone at that war filming it, or are these like shitty reenactors? But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You just get a bunch of like uh the sapiens to run around in like more or less underwear, like, right? <laughs> like it's so so you're telling me that we created this race of people and we threw them on Mars, which was obviously still hostile because all the humans you see are wearing like protective gear, gave them a pair of underwear, a helmet, and what looks to be like a rivet machine gun, 
which they then use to overthrow the humans on Mars. Right. And there's one there's one image of a Neo Sapien like coming up on a human, and he looks like he is really fucking excited about killing that human. He's like, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> and no other Neo Sapien you meet up until later in the series is like that. And even a lot of them are more sympathetic to humans than they they let on. Like it's it's awkward because like there's another kind of line in that documentary too. That I think like sort of subtly sets up some of the changes that there are some of the directions the show is going to go in way down the line. But um, McKenna mentions at one point, like despite their struggles and their and their losses, the Neo Sapiens hardly changed their situation after they were crushed for this like uprising. And it's like, oh, wait, so you're supposed to tell me these people are still like more or less living in slavery for the past 50 fucking years? And that's where you get into the real subtle world war ii setup right because they don't really talk about it now but they gave the neo sapiens mars after right. that war but from all we can tell mars kind of sucks <laughs> right <laughs> the only all just to do there is mine right yeah it's it's the situation where they they've taken this this these people they've defeated them in an uprising and they've placed them they're like here's your consolation prize you get your freedom and you get this planet but what is that really to you is it giving you is it giving you like the power to actually discern your own destiny as a race or as a people no we're just you know we're just giving this to you in hopes that you don't do this again right because the neo sapiens are still mining and like working for the humans even though they now have leadership which you know we'll see in these two episodes like comes in the form of Phaeton, uh, you know, and his lackeys, like, the Neo-Sapiens are still kind of subservient to the humans, though, at this point. Right. Do they even have sovereignty over Mars, too? He's like, and this might be a way to segment into the, segue into the next scene. Because, um, like, the next scene we see, um, or it's actually, it's a couple scenes on the line, I guess, but, um, you know, we see the Extra Squad, or the Able Squad, just kind of, like, ripping around in Neo-Sapien airspace, like, completely and fragrantly ignoring their, like, own sovereignty. Yeah, because like, they get, like, a bunch of tanks roll up on them. They're like, get the fuck off our planet. <laughs> right, and they, like, cause this, like, massive pile-up at, like, tank accident that might have even killed a couple of Neo-Sapiens, and they laugh it off as, like, this is just them joyriding. <laughs> we're, just flying our, we're just flying our weapons of destruction through their sovereign nation. <laughs> what what are these right. what are these borders? <laughs> and um Marsh even has like this really at the end of that scene, he has this really kind of ominous um comment where he says, next time we come back, we come back for real. And it's like, God, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think I know how you meant that, JT, but is that really the way you wanted to say? It? <laughs> right. It's like, what are you just gonna come back and kill all these people? Those those tanks, we could have killed those guys, but you know, we, we chose not to. So this is what's kind of weird for me, like watching it as an adult and not having the like the kid context or like the kid memory or nostalgia was like wait who who am i rooting for here (laughs) exactly that's why i think it's it's it'll be really good for people listening to this to who maybe haven't seen it to see it for see it for the first time and watch it along with with these episodes that we're going to put out because like thinking about I, I love the idea of taking these old cartoons that I really love and like thinking about them way deeper than they were probably ever intended to be thought about. <laughs> but it, it it is it is reflective of val of value building for children, right? Right. Because mm-hmm. kids are may not be able to like fully get on board with some of these ideas, but they're they're smarter. 
than we give them credit for. And they'll see this and they'll gain something from it or lose. Something. Absolutely. I mean, I remember my own experience of watching through this show and like, I missed a lot of the subtlety, I think in the first season being like a 10 year old, but as time goes by and you get into, especially into the second season, which I'm really excited to get to, because it's just so many good rich episodes in the second season. It's, you know, I remember kind of thinking like, oh my God, like these Neosapiens aren't, there's like good ones and there there's reasons they have motivations for why they're doing this. And this isn't just a cut and dry. Like I want the humans to win. Like I kind of, like by the end of the show, you kind of like as a kid and I remember wanting, like I want the Neo sapiens to win too somehow. Like I don't want anyone to lose because I can see like on both sides of this conflict, there are people who have like a real moral compass and really like aren't, you know, they have their mode. Even Phaeton gets kind of humanized by the end of this thing mm -hmm. to some extent. What happened in human history to, I guess, I guess really, yeah, that's a stupid question because I was going to say, what happened in human history to bring things to the point where they were creating basic artificial humans with feelings and <laughs> sentience and being like, you have no freedom. <laughs> Elon Musk? Yeah, right. right? <laughs> this, is, this is Elon Musk's future. We must stop no, him now. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elon Musk and like Mark Zuckerberg got together and by their powers combined, <laughs> created, created slaves. Yeah. They would too, I mean, right? I this is the future of capitalism, right? Like, and one thing Lexi and I, um, and you probably say a little bit to this too, Lex, um, one of the things that we sort of noticed watching the show is like how much it feels like the expanse. Also, if you've seen that show, Dave? I've seen, I've seen like the first 10 or 12 episodes of it. And you're and even from that. Yeah. I see where you're going. And yeah, absolutely. Right. Cause you have, you have Terrans, you have Martians who are locked in a conflict with each other. Uh, it goes cold and hot at various points in time. Uh, and then these people that live in the outer rim of the uh, solar system, belters, who are basically just like shitty abandoned slaves, like left to just like fend for themselves out there. And like it just the whole thing, like it feels like this is and like this one of the things I think is really stark about the expanse is like this is what capitalism will look like if we're still doing this in the age of space exploration. And like that's I think like sort of like what you kind of get to is things like what well, we can geoengineer or gene engineer these like uh Essentially, slaves and like whatever, just to throw them onto Mars to do the mining for us. It's way cheaper than. And the Neo Sapiens talk about this all the time, but how much better workers they are than the humans. Like, oh, the humans need to rest and eat. What a bunch of you know, suckers! <laughs> you have to sleep, <laughs> right? Assume <laughs> too much food. <laughs> you can't. You can't survive off nutrient paste and water like we can. <laughs> right, and breathe in like low oxygen and work for twenty four hours a day. What's wrong with ignore you? gravity? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, no, it, it, it's it paints a really interesting picture, which is why again, like, why I'm so interested in it as an adult. But so we get we get out of this um, this documentary from Charles McKenna and right into the action, where there are these pilots and some kind of cargo freighter watching this on tv and one guy is like watching a holographic dance porn that i swear <laughs> to god if you if you go back and listen to it you're gonna hear the music that's coming off of it and it's the music from yeah. like world one two of mario yeah it's the underworld music yeah of mario. yeah da -da 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 -da. It, <laughs> and 
the like this is where I say like nobody likes Charles McKenna because the guy turns it off. He's like, "This is Charles McKenna," blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> and and he's trying to tell like some kind of docking station or something that they're gonna arrive in two days. Which why are there people on this? <laughs> right, right. Well, so it's like I think they're going from like one like the Mars Patrol zone to like the Earth Patrol zone, and there's like a gap in between. Yeah, and, and but for some reason it's like oh the part where you're not being you're not being escorted that's the part that you're on autopilot. <laughs> right, it's like nothing bad will happen here. Wait, what about all those pirates? Uh, <laughs> you know they never actually show up. They're just an urban myth. <laughs> the ones that we can't see because they have a cloaking device. Mm. <laughs> One. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, isn't it the scene as well where that the guy like making fun of Charles McKenna also makes some sort of really weird offhand racist comment about the Neo Sapiens? Does he? Yeah, I, I don't remember. Yeah, he's, he's like that? almost as bad as those dang Neo Sapiens or something oh, like. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh. There it is. Okay. <laughs> it's it's one of it's one of the very first instances we get to see of like people still are are there's obviously a racism problem between human be terrans and neosapiens and later on we discover like that war really had was much more tragic than we than we originally were led to believe like there's people who are like i lost my family in this war and they hate the neosapiens because of it but then like you don't really see any of that from the neosapiens in an outward state like they're never they're never like outwardly hostile before the war starts towards humans which is why their war was such a surprise but the other thing i love the other thing i love about this scene is he's trying to talk to this lady at wherever they're going and she does not give a shit she is like <laughs> she is she is playing like pong or something on that on that computer she's in front of and not even acknowledging this guy's existence <laughs> i don't even think she says anything like uh, affirmative or whatever she's just like yeah whatever why the fuck are you calling me <laughs> right, get back to your porn hologram. <laughs> and the guy, and the other dude, the other dude watching is like, yeah, more porn hologram. <laughs> right? Like, can we just pivot back to the porn hologram too? Because it also appears to be a video game. Like, it's got like a little joystick and some buttons, and he's like playing it. Well, I could totally it, believe but... that because that's the future of porn, right? You got your you got your porn hologram and your bodysuit, and it's just like sucking all the right things. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's also like yeah. all he's got it doing is just like doing a little belly dance. Like what's fair enough, it's a kid's cartoon. It's not exactly gonna be doing anything. Don't like, don't kink shame the man, Kayvon. Don't kink shame the man. <laughs> That's well, kink shaming is my kink shaming. <laughs> okay. kink shaming is my kink so yeah. Well then more power to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then 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 now we get to that that scene you were talking about earlier where Able Squad, the the main characters of the show, are flying through Mars in some kind of training exercise or national park tour they're just able. yeah they're like yeah let's just let's just hop on down planet side and fly through this canyon it'll be fun and we get we get introduced to some of the characters and like things that stuck out to me like bronski is the worst airborne pilot <laughs> of the group like he can't fucking land his thing worth shit and he like almost trips and he's like ah uh. right he's just like yeah i think he's like i'm coming in hard and then like slams his e-frame into the ground crashes off a bunch of canyon walls belches and flies off this is the mark that brodsky leaves on the world 
Right. Which, I mean, like, as a kid, I remember just, like, I mean, Bronski was my favorite character. He was hilarious. It's like, just like this fat guy that just runs around and belches on everything and crashes the frame all the time. He seemed like he seemed like he would probably be the coolest dad because he wouldn't care what you're doing. And he would, like, pr- he would probably go out and buy you beer and cigarettes if you asked him to. <laughs> right. You're like, how old are you? Ten? Oh, that's fine. <laughs> it was a banner year at the Bronski household. Old man gave me a card to smoke, said, smoke up, Johnny. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he's like, uh, I guess because because it's a kid's show, they rely heavily on like tropes, right? And so things that you can already recognize or like attach yourself to, even as a child, like you've probably seen a lot of these like trope characters before. And so he's like that version of like, yeah, the slightly overweight, loves eating, uh, is clumsy, conscious, like continuously belching and being kind of inappropriate with people. Um but I mean, for that reason, he's got a little bit more personality than the rest of them. Like, I don't know, at least for the first few episodes, I was like, I cannot tell any of the women apart. Like, I know there are three of them, but yeah, I was just like, they have no personality until like that does get developed later. Like, and we can talk about this, but like Nara is the only one who's also like hyper feminine, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, uh, Bronski's definitely the most standout character in the first episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think the, the you can almost say that for almost for basically the entire series. Like him, JT, and Marsala seem to get all the attention, right? Because Bronski's mm-hmm. just a wonderful character, so they're focusing on him and JT and Marsala are kind of like leader type people. Yeah. Right. And you have Marsala um, you know, his entire his just conflict of self and interest throughout the entire show of like being a neo sapien fighting neo sapiens right yeah it's got to be mm. getting torn up inside like right especially what we find out about his past later um yeah. i don't want to get too much into the spoilers of that but it's mm. really, really i know good. i can't i can't wait to talk about that stuff yeah yeah a lot of questions come up in this episode about this military force the exos squad first off like, do they get trained specifically for the E-frame that they fly? Or do they just, like, pick which one they want to fly later on? Right. Like, does each one serve a purpose within a squad? Or can you just have any old mishmash of, like, you know, three Bronski ones, a JT Marsh one, and, like, two, I don't know, Nara Burns and Marsala ones, right? Right. Like, they each seem to have their own purpose. And maybe that's what they're going for. They're trying to, like, build these all-purpose general squads that can handle whatever gets thrown at them. But, like, besides maybe a little bit of, like, personality quirk and what we learn about the characters, there really doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason as to, like, why does Bronski have this giant thing with two barrels that shoot missiles on the side of it? And why does Rita, (laughs) why does Rita Torres have, like, the one with, like, swords and shit on it, which, right, right, swords on mech, I'm there. I'm here for it. Like, Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) But like, and it's like Bronski's has like a, a grappling hook and like uh, Rita's, you know, he has the sword. And then like Maggie has like basically the loader from Aliens. Yeah, I uh, love that thing. Right, <laughs> It looks sweet as shit. And it's like sweet. It's just like, oh, it's like definitely like even as a kid or everything like, hey, that's the loader from Aliens. Is she Ripley? <laughs> she she might like they probably like we're going for that right like something something recognizable that a lot of people would be like oh i remember that thing and that would draw them into the show yeah. um the other, uh, well i did skip over one important point in the last scene that freighter danube gets attacked by pirates <laughs> oh yeah we should probably mention oh, yeah. that yeah <laughs> that's probably a really important part of the plot they're like ah oh, man two days on autopilot gonna kick up my feet like this guy 
has just doomed himself because he's on a TV show and he said everything was going to be fine. Then all of a sudden, pirates! <laughs> space pirates! Yar. Uh, I'm not going to say it every time I say space pirates. Yar. But, uh, <laughs> but I might say it more often than I should. <laughs> And there's there's not a whole lot to talk about in, else in the in the flying the flight exercise scene except like the neo sapien tank drivers look like they're shirtless or they're wearing shirts that are the same color as their flesh. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I, don't, I feel like it's very it's very in tune with what we see in that documentary of like a bunch of neo sapiens running around in like underwear or like wrestlers like you know like wrestlers like not tights but whatever the like onesie underwear thing they wear is like. The real reason for the war is that no one would, no company would ever create clothes in their size, and they just finally had had enough shit. Like, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm tired of being bare chested. <laughs> you you caused this war. You made it illegal for them to sell textiles on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it also like I mean I don't know I don't want to get too deep obviously with the kids show but it, it kind of visually signals like their slave mm, status yeah. mm. to some extent like that's what comes to mind for me especially like the. Um, images of the rebellion where they're all like running around those little blowing class independence uh, the neo the neo the sapiens is the, that's for the ladies giant 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 <laughs> giant blue meat men that's what ladies I that's mean, what ladies like <laughs> right <laughs> not to Manhattan it works for a lot of people <laughs> I, I knew it I knew it <laughs> uh, so so Able Squad leaves Mars and goes back to Exafleet aboard the flagship flagship Resolute, which is one of the only capital ships they ever made a toy of, and it looks really cool. And I wish I had it. <laughs> oh man, how big was it? I never saw that. It was. One. I, uh, it looks like yeah, I never. I, I didn't do any comparisons, but it looks like it's about the size of a small cat. <laughs> wow, it's really big. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I'm looking at pictures of it on that's gigantic. Yeah. Like you just that that's more of like a model kit than a toy, right? Right. And it comes with like little mini E-frames, it looks like. And of course, true to all exo exo squad toys, it's got eight really gigantic looking plastic missiles that it can shoot. Yes. And probably like seriously cripple like a family member or pet. <laughs> Four cats. Uh <laughs> No cat is safe when the exosquads are out. It's true. It's true. Uh, well, so they get back to this flagship, and the the command crew is reviewing the security footage of what happened on the cargo freighter, the Danube. And this introduces Captain Marcus, this like good old boy. Like, does he, I, I wouldn't call it a southern accent, but it's like getting close to being a southern accent. Oh, it's like it's definitely it's it's not only is it a southern accent, but it's very like it's um, posh and proper. So like he's like yeah. like old southern money kind of like he probably has ancestors that own slaves kind of accent. Would you call him a proper southern dandy? Uh, I wouldn't call him a dandy. I would call him like someone who comes from a long family of like. Uh, that has like a long military tradition mm. almost like, you know, like is his great, 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 great grandpappy probably fought in the civil war for the South. Um, mm. Yeah. And like on up down on like, you know, like, and then like, you know, my grandfather fought in the, my great grandfather fought in the civil war. My grandfather fought in world war one. My pappy fought in world war two and like on down the line, but like much more refined than I could ever make that accent. Yeah. And then outranking Marcus, we meet, Admiral Winfield, who is like the chillest dude ever, right? 
yeah. for most of the time most of the time he's super chill because like jt and and his lieutenant nara show up for this meeting late and they're like marcus yells at him he says i i can't believe you went down there for joyriding and then winfield just flagrantly shows up marcus by lying he's said saying oh i gave them permission for those flight exercises and like it's a real casual disregard for discipline that i find a little un unbelievable in a military organization maybe right. maybe that's just because like of other popular depictions i have of of military life but the one thing like do you think he just like really likes JT? Would he do that for anyone else? Right. Or sometimes I also wonder like how much he likes Captain Marcus also. And is this a little way to just yeah. kind of like, you know, give Captain Marcus a little poke in the ribs? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, get, I really do get the feeling that like, he's like, how the, like s Captain Marcus got promoted and by some like political maneuvering and Admiral Winfield's like, are you fucking joking me? You're making this guy my second in command. Can I not have this? And they're like, no, you have to. It's like, I don't care who his grandpappy was. He's an asshole. Uh, uh, it's, and during the, during the footage, you see the Danube crew trying to fight back against the pirates. And the only weapon they have is like a leftover pipe that they had on the bridge. <laughs> Right. And, and this is your first time you get to see Simbaka, who fucking loves his job, right? This, is like, this guy loves being a pirate, a space pirate. And they have weird accents. Oh, I'll talk about that later a little yes. bit. Like, where do those accents come from? There's got to be somewhere. And But uh, at the end of this meeting, they say, okay, we got we to gotta send someone to the Danube because it's just floating out in space and see what happened. And he decides to send Able Squad, which I thought maybe might have been a little bit of a punishment for joyriding. Or does he just want it to be done right? It could be either or for me. Yeah, I mean, I think like Able Squad sort of presented as their like absolute best E-frame squad, the one you go to for all the tough missions. And if you consider how little the Exofleet has to do prior to the Neo-Sapien conflict, it's like, oh yeah, this is like, oh, something actually happened. Like there's a pirate attack. We better send the only people who actually know what they're doing and not other folks. Because you do find out later, like Marsh is a combat veteran well before um, anything, you know, kind of happens. And they're not sure if like the pirates are gone off the ship yet. So it's like, this could be a combat mission potentially. And yeah, and I get, I get the impression that like, he, he is a combat veteran because of the pirate like that is yes because yeah. he was That's who he was fighting yeah i it doesn't seem like except for maybe admiral winfield and some older members of the exo fleet that any active duty people were part of the first neo sapien uprising well we do it's very quick and i don't want to spoil anything but we do get confirmation that um later down the line um toward the end of season one that Winfield actually is definitely a veteran of the you know, safety. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I, I've, I've only been watching them. I only watched the first two episodes. The last time I watched the entire series was uh, maybe a couple years ago. I'm watching them as we film, as we record these. Ah, okay. And uh, I forgot about that, but that's good. That's good. So you do have some context for like where, right. where some of this command structure came came from yeah but and marsh it's definitely like it's the pirates he's fought specifically because that's all there is in the solar system to fight anymore that that like how how much of space is actually used and how much are the pirates covering because they can't be that many because 
space is infinite, right? It's just got to be like right. the shipping lanes between Venus, some of the outer moons, Mars, and Earth. It seems like right. that would be pretty easy to protect, but maybe there aren't enough exofleet. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so this this scene, the the end, and Winfield sa- says to JT that he's going to send Able Squad to the Danube uh, to check out what happened. And he goes down to the flight hangar with Nara, who was with him at the meeting. And you get kind of your real introduction to everyone in Able Squad. Um, I don't know if I want to go over all of them. Uh, you know, we we touched on Bronsky, whose full name is Wolf Bronsky. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Wait, is that a porn name? Was <laughs> a little bit. I mean, a little bit like Wolf Bronsky for real. Yeah. And, and uh, Nara, who was with JT at the meeting, who I can't. I feel like at this point she's the second command and maybe she shares that role with their intelligence officer, Alec DeLeon. I think she, yeah, she's the only other one that's referred to as a lieutenant, right? It's yeah. like JT's right. the lieutenant and so is Nara. And then everybody else is like sergeant or whatever else down except for DeLeon, the intelligence officer. Yeah. And I tried, I tried to kind of put it in the context of like commission versus enlisted people in the military. And mm-hmm. it, it seems like like Wolf Bronsky, Rita Torres, who seems to be like the you know, the in charge of uh, close quarters tactics and things like that, um, and uh, Kaz Takagi, the guy who flies the fighter jet, um, are enlisted, while everyone else seems to be kind of like this commissioned officer role that really has more duties outside of the squad and right. can take over command if need be. Um, and, then, and then you also have Maggie, who you mentioned before, have, has absolutely is flying around in Ripley's loader suit from, from Aliens. Um, right. And Ripley was a mechanic, right? Like, that was her yeah, job on, the, on board the Nostromo, right? So, yeah. like, yeah, she's, like, very much, like, a very strong, like, Ripley character. Yeah. It, and, like, some things that struck me in this scene, like, the the uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what is going on with these uniforms? The not uniform uniforms? Yeah, there's nothing uniform about them. I feel like, uh, maybe I said this before, when you, when you get into Exofleet, they hand you a leotard, they ask you what color you want it to be, and then they let you into a room with a whole bunch of, like, armor and weapons, and they're like, pick out what you want. And right. and like Rita, like you could tell, like Rita's into fighting. She has a gun attached to one arm and a knife attached to the other, and it looks like the knife goes past her hand, and so it's a rigid knife. So like she probably can't open doors with that <laughs> hand because she can't right. reach the handle. Slams her a lot of other people to open doors for her, and she has a nose ring, which of course is you know code for super badass lady, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially like in nineteen ninety, like three, right? It, and everyone else is just strapped with like this chest armor and like groin armor and boots and like guns all over them with up right. more knives. Like I think Alec, the intelligence officer, has like three knives. On his entire yeah. suit, you know, <laughs> and he's got like a gun on his chest and stuff. And... <laughs> but he, he he also he also seems like if anyone in this squad watches anime, it's Alec DeLeon because <laughs> he is like practicing his anime entrance and moves and shit, 
and like Takagi and Wolf or, or Bronski are like, yeah, best man. But you know later they're like, loser. <laughs> yeah, or like does Bronski say something like Takagi's like, oh, check out his moves. And like Bronski's like, yeah, some guys need to practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And also, speaking of, like, just uniforms really quickly, so we're not uniforms, like, Bronski also just has that coat that he wears. It looks like a windbreaker my dad had back in the mid-'80s. It's, like, beige, <laughs> like, kind of nondescript. It's got, like, an exofleet patch on the shoulder, but it just looks like something you might just, like, put on to casually go walk the dog. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell if it was if it was more along that lines or, like, maybe it's, like, a flight jacket that only a few people get like people who are like Bronski, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, it's, I don't know. It just like kind of strikes me. It's just like kind of casual, like windbreaker dad jacket. He's, but yeah. He's certainly <laughs> the least weapon covered and military looking person in the squad. Yes. Because he is so and casual. Like, I think. And when we're introduced to him in this scene, when JT comes in and everyone's like, you know, like I think Maggie or uh, uh, Rita is like the sergeant's like, you know, officer on deck and everyone like, stands to attention and he sucks his gut in and JT walks past. He's just like at ease. And then Bronski like lets his gut out. And he's just like, he has this like almost orgasmic look on his face. Like if you go back and watch, he's just like, Oh, and then he belches and JT like, Oh, disgusting. He's just like, but he's like, Oh, th- thanks JT. Uh. And it's just like, it's, it's like this like orgasmic belch. It's really kind of like, is this, is this okay for a kid's show? It, and go, going back to their e-frames, why does JT? Why is JT's suit the only one with wings? Right. <laughs> it, I I don't get it. Like it, 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 it there has there are some blurbs on their toys about his as like the flight model, but they all fly. And they're all in right. space most of the time. Like I understand, like right. maybe where wings might come in. I guess I guess Takagi. He has he has a jet. So it has wings, but those are the only two. And why? Why do you need the jet? Does it have more powerful weapons? Is it faster? I don't get it. <laughs> but who cares? Yeah, they never really cover that. It's just like, oh, the exo frame. That's like a. It's you know, like a humanoid suit that you can run around in. Also, we have this one that's a plane. <laughs> it, 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 uh, I'm not, uh, you know, it sounds like I'm nitpicking, but it's just like all these little things you pick up on as an adult where it's like, none of this really makes sense, but you know what? Mechs are cool and I'm here for it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you, you know what does make sense? Using crazy color schemes and like all these like really weird individual, not uniform uniforms and mech suits to sell merchandise, right? Yeah. Like, the kids have to be able to identify like immediately like oh it's that character because that's the one that's wearing like the hot pink leotard with green shoulder pads or whatever um it's like my favorite is that so many people in the show were hot pink dressed for the 90s and I think that's, that's part of it right it's like we're watching it as an audience trying to make sense of something from an artistic point of view but i think like within the bigger political economy of like kids toys and merchandising it's like oh yeah like you have to be able to identify really quickly like that's the character and I want that toy and that's the one, you know, and if I need to get like the whole squad or whatever, like they all look individual, they all look distinct. Um, Again, I'm looking at a lot of the toys and I'm like, oh yeah, you can see how like the toy design and then the kind of costume design in the show really work together. And they do a really good job of translating these designs into the toys too. Like those little figurines 
have a lot of detail and articulation on them. And they all come and I, I make fun of all these weapons they're strapped with, but every one of their toys comes with like each one of those weapons that you can put in their hands to play with. Yeah. Stuff. And it's like, wow, man, this is this was really like you were they were putting a lot of effort and money into designing this shit. Or they had to have, because right. you, know, you, you, you see you see some of those documentaries about toys that were made back then, it's like G.I. Joe. And then, like every toy that came out after GI Joe was the same size of GI Joe because they were just recycled GI Joe figurines, right? And then, which you, again makes you—it's oh, sorry. Go ahead. And then you get to this point where like toys started to be like really their own thing, like the X Men ones being analog to that cartoon, the Batman ones being analog to that cartoon, and like they really started to come out, come out uh, as something special. But this was, this was some of the best from back then, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, these are the, like some of the most quality, like interactive toys you could get, which is like, it again, just begs the question, like why did this show get the treatment that it did when like they put, obviously put a decent bit of money into the production schedule. Cause the animation is definitely jumps up significantly in the second season. Um, and like, you know, they do 39 episodes instead of 13 and they, they spent a ton of money on these toys and then they just let this show die. Yeah. Crying shame, crying right. shame, really. Fucking a, dude. I know because like uh, we'll get to it eventually, but like I want to know what the fuck happened after season two. I will tell you some of the things I've read about that at when we get there, but they're wild theories, really wild theories, and a lot of them, yeah. a lot of them come from like conspiracy theories about the toys and stuff too. But uh, so so the JT informs the squad of what they're going to do, and they they get ready to uh, head to the head to the cargo freighter Danube. And um, we jump right into that. They, you see them, they get into like a small shuttle. They're not in their E-frames. So like, okay, what's what's going to happen? Like, you know, they have to, they're vulnerable without those E-frames. And you, you get that sense because when they get there, they're being really careful because they don't know what's on that ship. JT is obviously trying to instill this, this feeling of caution and like, uh, appropriate fear of what they could encounter on there, especially with the rookie on the team, Kaz Takagi, who is super confident. He's like, oh man, these pirates won't be able to touch me. I'll just get in here and you know, we'll we'll clean up right away. But they they discover this grisly scene. Like this this freighter has been damaged. It's floating in space. All the cargo has been stolen. The the gravity is off and immediately Bronsky injures himself. Uh, by trying to jump through <laughs> this and hitting his head off the ceiling, and uh, they get to the bridge, and they they find the the captain's corpse floating because there's no gravity, and Marsala's like goes over with someone else and they check him and they confirm that he is dead, and Marsala seems to like know beforehand. I feel like that's some. Maybe maybe just lazy writing, but maybe some insinuation that his senses are so much better than everyone else's. He can tell if a person's heart isn't beating anymore right. from, from a few feet away. Bronsky belches in his helmet, which is super gross. <laughs> it's the running theme, right. of the running theme of the series. Bronsky is gross. Right. <laughs> and uh, you get, they find the other member, the guy who was watching porn, inexplicably trapped under this this metal thing in zero gravity 
And it, it turns out that the pirates have, have trapped this thing, have trapped him. And to Kaz who goes over and without the proper amount of caution, he moves that metal thing that's got the guy trapped and there's a fucking corpse mine under it. Like, these are not cartoon pirates. These are ruthless motherfuckers who will kill yeah. anyone. Like, they don't need to kill the people on this ship at this point. They've got all they wanted. They're just doing it to murder. <laughs> right, right. Like, and it's, you know, and not just kill the people on the ship, but the rescue squad that comes to get them, yeah. right? Like, and you get this really tense scene where, like, it starts counting down for the ship exploding, and they say every single number in a countdown of 60 seconds. And, like, yeah. that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> if if this show had been written today, like George R. R. Martin, everyone would have been dead. <laughs> like, yeah. haha, fooled yeah. you. You thought we were going to follow Able Squad, but here's Beta Squad. <laughs> 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 and they they managed to get everyone off the ship, including the one survivor, and into the into the shuttle. And JT's like, fucking move. And they they go as fast as they can, but the work crew that's coming to to like get the Danu back to the Exofleet can't hear them because their communications are scrambled for some reason. And the bomb goes off, and they fly yeah. the, they fly the shuttle across like the bow of the other ship to make them turn around. They understand the message, and they start to follow, but they're not fast enough, and they're instantly vaporized and killed. And the the people on the shuttle like barely make it out alive they have my favorite part is like they didn't have enough time to put on their seat belts or at least bronski didn't and bronski gets jostled to the point where he's like severely injured yeah which i remember like watching the scene as a kid and thinking like oh this is like where this is the part in the cartoon like you know i, I don't think i was like as aware of this as i would be now but like as a kid thinking like oh this is the part in the cartoon where like they rescue the other ship. They manage to somehow get a hold of the other ship and narrowly avert disaster, which is like what happens in pretty much every other cartoon from this time period. Yeah. But no, the people on that other ship, however many of them there are, are vaporized. And it's just like, oh, wait, what? Like, what? <laughs> They're dead? How does that? Hang on a minute, what? <laughs> so this this was the point where during this watch through, you may notice at the end of my notes, there's that death counter. And, <laughs> and I have, I, I've, I've been trying to make like, a scale for the ships that you see explode. Like obviously if a E-frame explodes, that's one person. And I'm saying like that work shuttle, 10 people, 10 people are dead. That sounds fair. And then yeah. like, it, like I have just three categories of capital ships. And whenever one of them explodes, I add 10, a hundred or like a thousand onto that counter. And right. I, it's, it really starts to pile up because it's a war. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, the end of this conflict millions of people are dead. Yeah. I would I would even go for so far as to say billions. That's yeah, actually probably highly likely considering how much chaos and carnage unfolds over these 59 episodes. And the amount of survivors that you see. Like it's sparse once it starts happening. One fit one like nitpicky nerdy physics complaint. Why was the explosion from the Danube so slow or was their ship that fast? Like, uh -huh. <laughs> like yeah right like cartoon physics whatever but like it really stuck out to me that like this explosion was like i'm going to meander towards you now and they, they somehow are flying fast enough and accelerating fast enough to get out of its range even though they were already in it which is as we all know not how explosions work <laughs> <laughs> no right but yeah i mean 
and this is this is one of your first truly brutal scenes in this show yeah it's really i don't know it's like kind of one of those moments that sort of sets the tone for what you're about to see like oh this is a show where people die which is not something you know as a, as a kid in the early 90s early to mid 90s that you're used to seeing in tv right like like we remember talking about this to you a million years ago how like gi joe it's like right before the missile hits like whatever like cobra helicopter or whatever the pilot jumps out like and it's okay you can see him like parachuting to safety even the tanks have like ejector seats with parachutes right like yeah, it's just like oh literally everyone has the most amazing reflexes that they're like i'm about to get hit by a missile in literally two and a half seconds boom i'm out of here yeah like straight to safety right right in time and like this show's like no there is no there's a few episodes in the second season where there's like you know like somebody jumps out just in time but that's that's not that's that's the exception more often than not it's like no you're dead sorry like you're, you're out of the show and, bye and most of the e-frames don't appear to have any type of ejection system Mm-mm. no they get stuck in them all the time yeah maybe mars maybe marsala and naras the double seater and kaz's might mm. have ejector seats but the rest of them are like sorry man the ship blows up you're dead <laughs> right yeah <laughs> Well, because they're like arms are actually in when you look at it, like their arms are actually in the arms of the E frame. Oh man, Move. can you imagine if there was an ejector seat with that? Well, this is why this is why this is why they have very good prestices, because this is uh this is this universe where they keep giving their arms right. and legs off. <laughs> right. It's like it makes me think of that um that uh um, scene in Starship Troopers where he goes to sign up for the infantry and there's the guy with like the one metal arm and he's missing his other arm and he has no legs. And he's like, yeah, General Infantry made me the man I am today, son. Like, like, oh yeah, it's like literally what every exosquad veteran looks like. Uh, is there anything else you guys had in your notes about that scene? Like, uh, Just that after, so like, you know, Bronski sort of portrayed as this like super fat slot, but as you notice, he gets bounced around in the, uh, in the or as you noted, he gets bounced around in the shuttle. Um, and then, so like right after that, we are shortly thereafter, we see him in hospital and he's like all bandaged up, but he's topless. Like he's completely shirtless and he's ripped. He's, he's jacked. Beyond jacked. <laughs> yeah. Like if he was taller, he'd be the mountain. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> he's huge. It's like, oh my God. Like that dude has enormous packs. He looks like a UFC fighter. Yeah. I know. He's gigantic and not like he's obviously got like a layer of chubbiness on him but like most of it's just like i feel like if i punched bronski in the gut i would break my hand no that's a good that's a good that's a good pick right there that that i noticed that too <laughs> like bronski is no slouch he he might skip leg day but <laughs> that's about it <laughs> <laughs> that's about it yeah but for so from here like we get, we go into the aftermath of this where uh you know they're They've gone to the UN General Assembly space station over Earth, which is gigantic because, like, you see this dome, and there's a city in the dome. Right. <laughs> what? Where? What did the UN become in the, in the from now to then, where it could afford this shit? And right, it's become like the kind of gen- it's become the Earth government, right? Like, it's as you move outward. It- you kind of lose the need for a nation state and the UN is like the kind of institution, especially in the early nineties 
when you come out of the Cold War's over, the Soviet Union's just collapsed, and like you know, the UN is sort of like looking like it's going to step up and take a larger role in like managing this like this new brave new world, right? The new world order of like where it's supposed to be like law and order nationally and stuff, and this is like this kind of brave new moment for for global civilization, especially in the age of globalization. It's just getting going now. <laughs> So I think there's an understanding of the UN as being much more capable of doing that than like what we see now, 30 years later, is this like sclerotic institution that can't like can't do shit. It hasn't been, you know, like we haven't had the Rwandan genocide where it's failed. We haven't had all these other like moments where the UN's just completely dropped the ball. The, you know, the massacres in Yugoslavia and all that sort of stuff haven't happened yet. So we have the sense of the UN is like a much more robust institution than it wound up actually being yeah and and it also reveals something about the world that i think is really important is that it's not one nation it's still yeah. divided into what seems to be basically all the nations that existed at that time period yeah and, and then also mars and venus <laughs> right right and, but we get to the we get to the scene and they're debating the pirate problem and they it, there's so I read this somewhere and I put it in my notes that I I don't know if it's right or not but someone like wrote something where like yeah this seems like your your standard Hillary Clinton warhawk in the UN talking about this and for some reason she's carrying her purse while she's giving this speech <laughs> <laughs> I missed the purse that's pretty great yeah, if you go back and watch it she's like go ahead like but one of the, she's got like a I'm trying to remember is it like a blonde kind of like uh, undercut and like a pink jacket and she's like the one like when the scene opens like she's shouting and like banging her hands on the the table of the lecture. Oh yeah she's real she's real aggro about everything. She is ready to go out and fuck some pirates up. But yeah. she also hates the exo fleet. Like cause she she says she says yes send in the exo fleet it's time they earned their keep. Oh yeah that's right well you get the, i mean it's like kind of you do get the sense like it is this sort of like large bloated military institution that like you know it, it fights pirates here and there but what else does it really do you know there's the neo-sapiens to this point haven't been able to you know do anything since the rebellion and then like yeah the pirates like probably raid here and there and blow up but like you get the sense that like combat with the pirates is probably not super common because everyone's really shocked by this yeah. one like pirate raid right like it's not like this is happening all the time because like otherwise it'd be like oh the pirates did this again i feel like there's some side story that we we don't get where like the pirate clans were divided but simbaka came in and mm. united them and got them to the point where they could fight the exo fleet like this right right that works for me i mean that would make a certain sense because you know he just all of a sudden he's like oh he's the man that united the pirate clans it's like, okay yeah yeah it, i posted a picture of the lady in the in the uh, general channel of discord she looked oh good yeah i was i was like looking for that real angry <laughs> Yeah, and she's like kind of vaguely. It's like it's hilarious that she has her purse. I never noticed that. Which, like, yeah, I guess you get the kind of Hillary Clinton, and it is the it's you know 1993, so like Hillary is like a household name at this point, and like this is like the era where it's like okay, get used to like women being in politics. Like this is becoming a thing. But she's like, yeah, like kind of almost a sort of fascisty, you know, sort of right. Like she seems kind of fascistic herself, like with the slamming the hand on the podium and like, we're going to crush like the pirates and all this stuff just seems really, really militarist. And like the, the military style jacket. I mean, it's not 
I don't know, just from like a fashion perspective, it's got like like buttons and like the collar. Uh, and I kind of wonder if they added the handbag and the earrings because maybe she looked too androgynous or something. <laughs> like I kind of wonder it's part of it. Like, oh, we need to like uh, signal this person's gender like more clearly. <laughs> Gonna be too I could absolutely see that because it, you know the the animation in this is not. I would not say that the animation in Exo Squad is top notch, especially this early on. So like they probably did use tricks like that because you can see like the earring is it really sitting right on her ear and things like that. It's it, yeah. I could I could absolutely see them adding that in post post original like cell making to make her seem more feminine, but um. Then, like, she's talking, and she's slamming her fist and everything, and this guy speaks up, and he's like, I think we should negotiate with these people. <laughs> Wait! Has anyone forgotten what war is like? Fifty years ago, we said never again. I say negotiate with these people. And it sounds like it's it very... It, it's stereotypical, like he's supposed to sound, I, I get the feeling that he's supposed to sound like whining and it's supposed to demonstrate like this 90s ideal of manliness where negotiating is for the weak and this guy gets immediately shut down by the most charismatic person in the entire building, Phaeton standing up, towering over everyone. And we, Phaeton is a Neo-Sapien governor of Mars. And he gives this speech where he's like, and gather the fleets together and take them against the pirates. And like the bootlicker in me would jump into a volcano if Phaeton told me to. <laughs> like, right. Like, yes, sir. Yes. Well, because he starts the whole thing with this, like, really, like, you know, we Neo-Sapiens know better than anyone the costs of war and why war is something that should be avoided. Yeah. Um, you know, and like, so he like, begins with this appeal where he's like, I understand the stakes. Like I know better than all of you, like what this is, like what, what are the stakes are here, but the pirates are such a menace. They destroyed this one spaceship and they destroyed that dancing porno game. So we have to get them. Cause like, you know, also just one little, to go back to the space shuttle scene, like when the, when the ship explodes, there's that like the porno things like flying through zero gravity and it's like the first thing to get hit by the shock. I forgot about that. It's like, no. <laughs> what a loss. We must protect our universe's supply of hologram porn. Right. Our cultural artifacts. These are great, great <laughs> exemplars of our, our stunning culture. It's like the Don Juan of the future. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, we get out of there unless you guys got anything else you want to talk about the the future un the the unbelievable future un um especially nowadays the uh the fleet is get the exafleet is getting ready to engage the pirates on the on like go after them in their base in their home bases and we get i, I think this is, is, is like this nice bit of character building where Lu lieutenant nara burns is dictating a letter back to her family on venus and i don't know whether we learn whether if they are like a farming family right now but it gives this kind of this nice like this stereotypical tropey old-fashioned like farmer girl goes goes and joins the military to see the universe or to see the galaxy or solar system they don't believe the solar system and she's she is at it she is extremely competent or depicted as very competent 
And, but at the same time, she's missing her family. And we get a real sense for that. And she talks about her, the, her fellow members of Able Squad and how close she's become to them. And they, it also shows like kind of the magnitude of the fleet as it's getting ready to leave for this battle. And she has a teddy bear. Yeah. I, so I, I don't know. I don't want to like should talk the scene because I think you're right. It does do some good work in terms of like building her character and um, setting up a little bit more of the world like that. But at the same time, the first time we watched this, I was like, wait, hang on. Who the <laughs> fuck is this now? Like I didn't recognize her, not in her hot pink green shoulder pad uh like uniform <laughs> and second like, she's in her like little like pajamas with this teddy bear or bunny rabbit thing. <laughs> and i was like wait why is there a teenage girl she looks like, completely she different than when we saw her in that meeting with jt like right is she she's not right. wearing her uniform she's and also everyone in this fleet gets their own room like <laughs> right that's right, counterintuitive yeah. to everything i know about space flight uh <laughs> Right. They and she, like you said, she's depicted as I guess what would be the term like hyper feminine, and yeah, it, like I mean, it, like I guess it depends how you read it, right? Like I would say in some ways like hyper feminine because she's also the only one, um, at least at you know at this stage of the cartoon with like really long girly hair. Like I love that her ponytail sticks out the back of her <laughs> uniform. Um, and it's like, just put that shit in the bun, dude. Like, I don't know. Yeah, if she got ejected from her exosuit, like, she would just lose that part. Of it just like, gets her getting ripped off. <laughs> right? It's like that episode of uh, It's Always Sunny where, like, Dee's <laughs> fucking braid gets stuck in the, um, the like, ride up yeah. there. But anyway. Uh, so on the one hand, yeah, she's kind of, like, feminized. On the other hand, I mean, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to be, like, too critical, but it, you could say that there's a bit of, like, infantilization going on because she's, like, made to appear, like, very childlike, I think, in the scene. Um, but maybe what they were trying to go for is more, like, her vulnerability as a person, as opposed to, like, she's a little girl. One, one <laughs> 100% agree on all, on all that. Like she is, she is depicted in a way that, on the surface, feels good because, like, she's getting some character growth. But like, when you get down into like, man, couldn't they just depict her as like a normal adult? <laughs> right. And, and the thing about the hair, I constantly thought about that. Where like, man, if she gets in like a hand-to-hand fight, the first thing I'm going for is that hair. <laughs> like, oh, I got, got your ponytail. What are you gonna do? <laughs> Cut it off, right. I guess. Especially if you're a Neo Sapien, you could like dangle, literally dangle yeah. her body. Oh man, that would hurt so much. Just like, yeah. Yeah. You could choke her with her own point and tell. It's pretty. I bad. also, I mean, I wonder um, too, like the, the the way that she's so feminized um, in that scene. It's like, think about, think about the women that we've mostly seen thus far in the show. We've seen Rita Torres, who's super masculine, you know, I mean, like she's got kind of like a, 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 a butch haircut. She's like real rough talk, like, you know, like this, like she's the, you know, like it's the the standard trope of like the gruff sergeant and space marine sergeant or whatever in so much sci-fi and just in general, like the Arlie Aramie character, you know, she's that to a T. Yep. And then we see this like super fascist, like UN General Assembly lady who they had to like potentially in like post-production basically add like an earring and a purse to just to like make sure that, you know, it's a woman. Um, maybe this is like, oh, like, well, actually like, because like two things kind of make me think about this is like first off it's like oh there are actually women here we promise and second of all like 
when you were talking earlier about how each toy is meant to maybe potentially, I speak to different people in different ways. Like I thought burps were funny as a kid. So I thought Bronski was like the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think burps are funny. Burps and farts are like peak of humor, but um, you know, like what's interesting about the show is like, is it also trying to sell war toys to girls? Like is, is Nara Burns supposed to be the character that's like, Hey, you know, like young girls watching this too, like with your older brother or whoever it might be like, there's someone here for you to identify with also. And for, and for the time, th- even though commercially motivated, that would have been pretty forward thinking. I mean, this show does do like thinking about that, right? So because it was like Maggie Weston, who's like the engineer, you know, we've been comparing her to like Ripley character. And she's also got the kind of short hair, um, more androgynous like look, I guess. Although they all have like the pink lips. It's like the cartoon pink lipstick that you constantly always wear. I love it. Um, but yeah, like Nara is like the most feminine or feminized of them. Um, but it's kind of interesting cause it does the same thing that like Starship Troopers does, which is almost like remove gender mm. from the like military aspect. It's like, oh yeah, like this is what equality looks like. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. I see no co-ed <laughs> showers in Exofleet. <laughs> I mean, that would, that would be interesting. I, yeah, we should, we can talk about that also when we get into some of the stuff with oh, Nara yeah, and Masala yeah, later, yeah. but, uh. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just thinking about some of that now. Oh, I can't wait to get to that. Oh, yeah. I know. There's so much rich stuff coming. Stay with us for at least like the next 10 episodes because there's so much rich, rich stuff coming down the line. Yeah. The, uh, but so, so we get out of this, the, this scene that kind of demonstrates how big the Exofleet is and this character growth for Nara. And we, we find Bronski in sick bay after the mission because he got jostled. And um, JT comes in. And this is where we find out that Brodsky is, you know, jacked. And JT is like, man, sure is a shame you got hurt and pokes him in his broken rib. <laughs> <laughs> and Brodsky's like, cut that because <laughs> it really hurts. And it's like, man, JT, you're a dick. Uh, right. and, he t- and, and they talk about how he can't go on the mission, but then that never comes to fruition. Like immediately after the scene, he's out flying. Right, and, and it's like it's one of the one of the few moments in the show where like the stakes are built and then just completely dropped. Uh, probably for business reasons and keeping the episode as short as it needed to be, but still. And then immediately after that, they're talking with uh, they're they're sitting having a meal, and Charles McKenna comes in. And starts to stir shit. And he's like, this, <laughs> this is the squad that blew up that work crew. Don't they feel bad? And like Marsalo glares at the camera and scares it away, which is great. I love that this camera this camera is like sentient and it's like, oh shit, this guy's gonna break me. Right. It reminds me a little it's like R2D2 is a camera. Yeah. It's like a floor space camera. Why was I programmed to feel fear? <laughs> right. Uh, and like he really digs into them, and yeah. JT. Gets- oh yeah, he's got a great line. Like one of my favorite parts of that scene is where he's like, "Oh, because JT yells at him. He's like, oh, well, no, I'm here to tell your side of the story too. Like I want that's why I'm here, so you can tell me what you what happened with your 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 perspective." He's like, and then so then the next thing he says is, "I hear one of your guys is responsible for uh, costing the shuttle crew their lives." <laughs> you know like i'm not trying to elicit a 
response that will get ratings here but jt plays it cool he's like he's like i i speak for my squad they are all well trained they did exactly what they were supposed to do if it's anyone's fault it's mine and you can take it up with me and they all leave and like i i thought it was showing incredible restraint because in any other cartoon he probably would have just beat the shit out of charles mckenna (laughs) right and i'm not gonna say didn't deserve it, but maybe Charles is a little right because it is Kaz's fault that that crew died. Right, and it's JT's fault for not like securing. You know, he's the rookie. This is his first mission. It's his fault for not making sure that he is like supervised and not able to do something rash, like you know, because like JT, if you know, if we're to understand that he's a veteran of you know multiple, at least several conflicts with the pirates, like he should know better that this is probably booby trapped. Yeah. And, you know, it is kind of his responsibility for letting Kaz make this mistake. And I'm not, like, I don't know whether one way or another, like, do they deserve to be, like, court-martialed or something like that? Or, you know, it, it is, it, they were attacked and the attack worked. It, it, yes, it is Kaz's fault that he set off the bomb, but it is the pirates who placed the bomb, right? It's like right. It's 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 a little like blaming the bomb squad for not being able to disarm something, but at the same time, like I understand like where like this is part of where it gets iffy. Like uh man, I keep saying like I gotta stop that. Uh it gets iffy. Whatever. We're millennials. <laughs> yeah, we're millennials. That's the elder millennial network. Um the oh, I forgot where I was going. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we added things. <laughs> yeah, that's why we added um, things. Is get get rid of that whole ramble. Um, oh yeah, what, what what I was trying to say is this is where the show starts to get those iffy points of view, where like you can think of it either way, you know, and that's good. I think it's good to challenge children with those kind of things. Although again, like if you know, if the UN and most of the planet sees the Exo Squad as just um, kind of like I don't know superfluous military like bloatage then it also kind of makes sense that he as a journalist would be like trying to point out how useless they are um so i don't know. i mean it kind of fits within the whole like world building narrative that's going on in this uh yeah so. i feel i feel like charles again charles buchanan is he would probably be working for the blaze nowadays and he would <laughs> or maybe not because he seems anti-military but like he's he's going in and he's being provocative to elicit a response that will get him to a story to tell. And And that's, you know, that's where I actually come to think of it. Like, I bet you he would be like a a local network news reporter, like, you know, like Mm. nightly news, CNN, CBN or CBS, like nightly news or something like that. Right. Yeah. I could see that, you know, cause he's like, he's, you know, like one step down from, um, Jake Gyllenhaal's character in Nightcrawler. Oh, that's right. I didn't even think about that. No, that's a perfect analogy. I mean, he's not as scummy as that character, but that's a really good he's way close. to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. He will make the story if it's not there. Right. Yeah. No, that's a, that, I didn't even think about that. Excellent. Excellent way to look at that. Um, so um, moving on to the next scene, the, the Exo fleet is closing in on the pirates, navigating through an asteroid belt, and they spring this great trap with these rocket propelled the uh, asteroids or whatever the correct term for them is that can turn on a dime <laughs> in space right. with just jet right. on the back 
Like, I don't know how right. I, I don't know how that works, but future shit, man. Like right. <laughs> For space pirates, man, they are super technically advanced. They are. They are. And maybe maybe that's what like they have to steal technology, right? That's what the Danube the Danube was uh delivering. These little jet propellants that they immediately attach to rocks to throw at other ships. <laughs> um it would, but they they start flying after them, and one of these they blow up some of the asteroids with the guns on the on the uh, on the resolute, but one of them blows up too close and it damages the resolute, and that starts the fight. Um, Marcus, Captain Marcus, who seems to hate E-frames uh, tactically, like yeah, he he doesn't want to use them, even though yeah. like they're in a flying field of rocks and they need to maneuver. <laughs> and, and he's he he resists sending them out, but then Winfield is like, "What the fuck are you doing? Send the e frames, you goddamn idiot!" I wish he would. Right. I wish he would have said it like that. And he says it, right. but he says it in this really whiny way. Where he's like, "Marcus, send out the e frames now." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good Admiral Winfield. <laughs> it's 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 oh, it's, it's just a moment of like, okay, like maybe maybe the maybe they didn't have a, a whole bunch of clarity on the direction that that scene was supposed to go or how Winfield was supposed to sound, but he really did sound like a little kid yelling at his right. dad to like give him back his toys. <laughs> oh, Dad, send out the e frame. But there's there's so much good shit about this scene, like when they're flying out. JT, they zoom in on a front view of him in his E-frame in space, and you can see the reflection of the giant pirate fleet in his windshield. And it's like, it's building this sense of, like, real danger. And, like, uh, it's it's really getting to the point where, man, more people are going to die real quick. Well, because the pirates are cloaked too, right? Like they can't, the extra fleet can't actually see them. So first off, they go through this asteroid trap. And then when that like kind of, when they're, you know, does some damage and kicks off the fight, that's when the pirates then pop out. And like all of a sudden they're just surrounding the exo fleet with this, their enormous fleet. They're caught unaware. They're in real yeah. shit. Because the pirates have that like cloaking technology that we learn about. Later. Yeah. And we learn about like how it's made and everything, which it turns out to be, I think some of the really yeah. interesting stuff about the story. It leads to a yeah. lot of things that happen later on, um, and, and this is where this is where I written down in the notes because we get more pirate dialogue here. What are these accents? <laughs> why, why do the pirates have these accents? So, like, I mean, okay, at this point, you don't know the whole backstory of where the pirates come from, but I, my initial reaction, and again, maybe this is just informed by watching, like, binge watching The Expanse during Corona times, but. Um, I feel like the accents are kind of supposed to like racialize them yeah. to some extent. Not that the pirates are people of color, but like they're setting up this distinction, right? Like Terrans are like good middle class, uh, <laughs> Mid- <laughs> like Midwestern values. <laughs> right. And the pirates are like these kind of interesting um, ethnic. I mean, some of them are, yeah, some of them are like quite obviously racialized in the way that they're animated and drawn, and others are more, uh, Caucasian appearing, but then have these like very interesting. Accents. Even like when you say racialized, though, it's like racialized in the, in the way that like H.P. Lovecraft would like think about race, and that like it's like some of them are very like Mediterranean or like Italian. It's like you know like the Italian and Spaniard ones, and like maybe this guy's like vaguely some kind of Slavic. 
Like it's not, it's, you know, because like even among the pirates, there's not like a lot of like African American looking people or black people, right? Like it's just like these like vaguely ethnic in a 1930s kind of sense, like guys with these right. like little I mean, mustaches too. Like so yeah. many of them have these like sweet little mustaches. I was going to bring that up. How many pirates have pencil yeah. mustaches right. or Fu man <laughs> shoes or just, right. or the full Simbaka yes. like Santa Claus beard. Right. And it's like, when you hear them, everyone's like, Seem back <laughs> close the trap. <laughs> right. <Attack>. So... <laughs> oh. uh, but like it's you bring up the expanse, and that's the like I don't again, I don't want to give anything away, but when we learn about the pirates' backstory, it makes kind of sense that they would have this like kind of weird, hard-to-place accent. Because like you think about the belters in the expanse, they have their own sort of creole, right? That's emerged from like Years yeah. of them living at the centuries or however long of them living out in the far, you know, far reaches of the solar system, uh, forming their own kind of dialect, really. And that's like sort of the same thing almost with the pirates you could see is like they're just out there talking to each other and their accent goes off in its own direction. You get this kind of Creole mishmash of accents, uh, which, again, like once we get to the yeah. pirate backstory, like there's a lot more we can talk about here. But yeah. Well, and this scene goes by relatively fast. Like, there's some good space battling, and there's explosions, and pew 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 pew, and the and it, it ends where like Able Squad is split up because the fight is getting hectic, and Bronski is like spinning out of control and being pursued by three pirate like spaceships, and. He's like he's sweating and he's screaming like where is everybody? And then the the episode ends. Uh, it's yeah. like, is he gonna die? <laughs> if it yeah. if this if this cartoon was made <laughs> in like after 2010, he might be dead. <laughs> right. Well, and Spoiler I mean, alert. even <laughs> what you've seen in this episode of like, oh, I just watched that shuttle crew just get eva- vaporized. Like what? he might die. I don't know. I'm just a kid like shit. Like people are dying in the show yeah. and it looks like this guy might die. I don't like at, as at 10 years old, I don't quite have the cynicism to be like, Oh, it's a cartoon. Everything turns out in the end. Like, no, Bron- yeah. this nope. this the guy who I really like because he, he belches and he's funny is afraid. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he seems fearless. He doesn't like give a damn about like crashing into stuff and flying all over the place. But here he, yeah, he might die. And that's like, that's one of the things about this show in general, if you're like new to this and you're just kind of getting into watching this, uh, it's the very high likelihood or there's the very real possibility, especially when you get into the second season of characters that you are attached to not making it. Yeah. It really sells the fear. Like, yeah, big time. It makes those space battles actually mean something. Mm -hmm. Unlike GI Joe where it's like, Oh, well everybody will just pilot out of their shit and whatever, like, and it'll be fine. And it'll just be like back to fighting Cobra next week. Oh, so I mean, I guess um, at the I at this point we've been we've been talking for over two, for about two hours, almost two and a half hours yeah. about one yeah. episode in generality. So I think I think this episode, instead of doing one and two like I had originally planned, I think maybe we should kind of call it here. Um, yeah, definitely. I I would like to I would like to at the at the end uh, just ask you guys: Is there anything you're you're doing creatively, academically, or anything you or Hey, you know, it doesn't have to be something you're doing. Just shout out the things you like. Is there anything you'd like to plug at the end of the episode? Uh, Lex, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but let's maybe start 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 with you. Oh my god, I'm trying to think now. Um, sorry, sorry, I should have put you on the spot. I should what go first. 
fuck am I doing with my life? Uh, <laughs> not right now. Nothing comes to mind. Like, I don't know. I guess I'm trying to write this thing called the dissertation that would be a lot more fun if it was just being. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's soon it's soon to be <laughs> Dr. Lexi and Dr. K and Dr. Kavon, right? I am Dr. Kavon. You, uh, yeah, it's uh, already Dr. Kavon, but soon to be Dr. Lexi. Yeah, I'm probably about two years away from being uh, that, Dr. Lexi. To me, that's mm. practically tomorrow. But... I mean, at this rate, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. Let's not sorry. talk about it. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, you, uh, that, that's yeah. you. Kayvon, anything you want to plug? Uh, eventually, and I probably will speak about this more in more detail. I'm kind of taking it easy for a while uh, now that I'm done with my PhD, just having some like video game and, and relaxation time. But uh, eventually I will be getting going on a podcast about my doctoral research, which was on like the history of white nationalism and like it's sort of um, activism strategies and stuff and how it sort of made the jump from pre the pre pre digital media to digital media and like, you know, sort of digital communications and social media and all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, that's something I'll eventually kind of have be putting together, like not anytime super soon, but like the next six to 12 months. Yeah, I'll probably be looking to put out a few episodes about that. I got, I got to be honest. I've always hoped that you two, like the conjunction of the of the two <laughs> things that you guys have worked on academically, I've always hoped that you that one, if not both of you, would start a podcast about that shit because I think it's important and I think people need to know like the things that you two have found out throughout your academic careers about these these groups <laughs> let's just say that oh. uh, but yeah. okay uh yeah so um i so i am creatively bereft in my entire life besides this podcast so i have nothing to plug i will however say that um the the per the artist making the covers for for this podcast and some of the art that i'm going to put on the patreon which i will probably create an outro that lists all that for the elder millennial network will are all coming from a artist who goes by rage studios i will put links to the to her uh ko-fi page it's kind of like patreon but a little easier to use and um, not uh, not as in tune with the reoccurring uh patronage and uh, I will put links to their artwork and their Ko-Fi page if you want to support them. Um, and that's that's it for me. I am super boring and don't do anything. And I think that's it. Good night, everybody. See you next episode. <laughs>